Our text is Romans 8, verses 18 through 30, and you have now had time to find it. This is the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, as we study this word, even from our distant locations, as we study this word, would you do something miraculous and glorious in the people who hear these words and give us gospel and hope and courage and let it lead us to honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you the lyrics of a hymn that we haven't sung yet at Providence, but I think we will start adding it to the list whenever we get back. It's written by William Cooper, and I don't know if you know the name William Cooper, but he's the man who wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. Great, great hymn. This hymn comes, I believe, from 1774, if the numbers that I read online are correct, but the hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to this. It's beautiful. It says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. 
God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Those are beautiful words, powerful words, and they're especially lovely when you understand that they were written by a man who battled a severe personal depression. Cooper was known for having tremendous emotional downturns. But Cooper, as we see in the hymn, saw that there is real hope for our lives and for our souls, even when we face what look like dark circumstances. Well, in the text we're going to study this morning, we're going to see greater hope than you could ever find, even in a beautiful hymn like that, because we will find hope in the Word of God. You know, when people are struggling, many people will turn to Romans 8.28. When there is suffering, when there is fear, Romans 8.28, people love to quote. Well, today, we're going to see that text, but we need to see the context around it, and we will find encouragement for our souls. So, if you want to be a note-taker... We are going to find five points to help us to live with hope in a broken world. Hope in a broken world. That's what I'm calling this, and so I hope it helps you. Our first point, our first point, our sufferings are small in the light of our hope. Our sufferings are small in the light of our hope. Verse 18, which is really the theme verse of this entire section, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul, the apostle, knew about suffering. He knew what it was to be sick, to have his life threatened by government, to be attacked by a mob. Paul knew what it was like to be beaten in a jail. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by a close friend. Paul went through harder seasons of suffering than many of us could ever imagine. But the apostle found a way to look at his suffering, and the way that he looked at his suffering helped him to face it with both strength and hope. Paul had a particular perspective that made it possible for him to see his suffering as, well, small at least comparatively small. Paul looked at his suffering on the one hand, and then he looked at the glory of eternal life with Christ on the other. And when Paul compared the two, Paul saw the truth that our suffering is tiny in comparison to the glory to come. Now, for many of us, every year that passes in life, helps you to be able to understand what Paul's saying right here. Just watch whenever you see a high school student hear a grade school student who thinks that school is too hard, right? Have you ever seen that happen? Because the high school student looks at the grade school student and says something like, oh, if you only knew how hard it gets. But then just imagine a college student who hears a high school student complaining about how busy they are. The college student's going to say, oh, if you only knew how hard it gets. Or look at a dad who's working hard and trying to provide for a family when a college student talks about stress. The dad's likely to say, oh, if you only knew. But the truth is, in all of those, every one of those has their own problems. You who are watching this and who are in elementary school, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, you know school can be hard you know it can be a little stressful for you sometimes. And you who are in 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grades, whatever, 
you know it can get harder and you feel like it's hard. No matter what age the student, school can be rough. But as the years go by, as we compare the stresses of one time of life to the stresses of another time of life, we realize that comparatively, the things we used to think were huge might not be so big after all. But it's funny because when Paul talks about a comparison here, he doesn't compare problems with problems. Instead, Paul compares problems with the promise of eternal joy in Christ. Here's how he says in another letter, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, which reads, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, is Paul here saying to us that our fears and our sufferings in this age are nothing Is he telling us, oh, just pretend like suffering isn't real? No, not at all. What Paul's saying is, when we compare the suffering we face in this life to the glory that's in our future, that's when our suffering begins to look small. I want you to imagine, and this is an imagining, I want you to imagine that I could promise to give you a million dollars. But in order to have that million dollars, you have to give me five dollars. Would that be a good deal, first of all? Owen, what do you think? Um, okay, he's thinking it might be. I think now, it would. Thanks, sweetheart. But, you know, you might think to yourself, but I really wanted to use that five dollars. I was going to go to Starbucks. I'm going to miss that $5, you might think to yourself. I'm going to miss my venti triple shot caramel macchiato. But if you're going to get a million dollars the next day, one day's loss of sugar and caffeine is something I think you could bear. Well, Christian, what does God want you to understand here? He wants you to understand that while you will suffer in this life, and there's no doubt about that, there's a hope of something glorious to come. And the hope that is to come is so big. It's so stunning. It's so soul-satisfying that once you experience it, you're going to look back on any suffering that you have ever faced as something light, momentary, and small. You're going to look at the suffering of this life, and you're going to say that the pain of today bears no comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Now, that's the theme for this whole passage. Let's look forward, and let's see if we can find some ways to remember hope in our hardship. So, second point this morning, number two, creation groans with hope. Creation groans with hope. Look at verses 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, as Paul talks about hope that dwarfs our suffering, he illustrates the idea first by pointing to creation. And, and here when he's talking about creation, he's not talking about people per se, but he's talking about the natural order, plants and animals and water and such. So what do we know about creation? We all know that God made everything that exists. Even you youngest listeners know that God made everything. And we know that creation is not at present as perfect as it one day will be. You know, it was around the beginning of 2015, and I can't remember if it was January, February of 15, or if it was a little earlier than that. But sometime around that time, I had a telephone interview with the pastoral search committee here at Providence Reformed Church. And members on that team asked me questions that they felt like were important so that they could get to know me and they could see if I was the right person to serve as their pastor here in Las Vegas. And one of the questions, which I really, my memory wants to say that Jason asked me, though it could have been from somebody else, but the question was, what would you say to someone who claims that we presently are living in the new heavens and the new earth. What would you say to somebody who says that right now we're living in the new heavens and new earth? And my first response to that question was, well, I would ask why my mom still can't grow a plant. And it's really true. Mom, mom is notorious in our family for killing any plant she ever touches. And we don't know why this happens. But we do know. By the way, she has gotten better, so, you know. But we do know this. Dying plants remind us that the world we live in is not yet perfect. And I think we all know that things are wrong in creation, don't we? Viruses circle the globe. Earthquakes tumble buildings and floods ravage farmland and Tornadoes tear through shopping centers and animals attack and droughts cause failure of crops and weeds and thorns grow in your garden. And Paul says that the creation is waiting for something. In fact, it's waiting for it with eager longing. I read one commentator that said it's like creation is standing on tiptoe to see something. Creation holds its breath in anticipation of a thing that is coming and that is amazing. It's like a kid going to bed on Christmas Eve. Again, you remember what it's like, don't you? Going to bed and how hard it was to get to sleep because you were so anticipating that next day. It's like, it's like a concert goer when the lights go down and all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's going to start and you're so excited. It's like a person who is in social isolation quarantine and they watch the timer tick down on something they're baking. You just can't wait for it to be done. Creation is looking forward to something and it just can't wait for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, what is the revealing of the sons of God? 
That is the day to come. That's the day of the Lord. That's the great day of the resurrection of the saints. That's the day to come when the Lord Jesus returns with us from heaven. When the Lord Jesus raises our bodies from the grave. When the Lord Jesus grants us eternal resurrection bodies that will never fail. And they'll live with him in glory forever. You might say, why is creation anticipating the day when you and I are resurrected? And the theology is actually pretty simple. When Adam sinned in the garden, God subjected creation to futility. That's what the text says. Creation suffered the curses of God for our sin. Some of the curses that God pronounced, he said, of course, people are going to die. Childbearing is going to be painful. And the earth itself is cursed. Adam's sin broke the universe. This is why God said from, to Adam, you're going to grow crops and there's going to be, it's going to be hard. There's going to be sweat. And there's going to be thorns and stuff. Well, Paul says creation is looking forward, leaning forward with breathless anticipation in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation, the universe itself is looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back because when Jesus returns, he will fix the universe. He's going to remove the curse. He's going to set right all that's gone wrong, all that's ugly, all that's imperfect. Thus, Paul tells us, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation groans. Like a woman in labor crying out in pain, creation longs for a day when the goal of its existence is going to be realized. And God has promised that day is going to come. So why talk about this, you might say? We, we suffer. So does creation. Creation has the hope of eternity perfected by Jesus. So do we. And when we see that hope, when we let our minds go there, we can walk through the suffering of the here and now. Let's go a little further. Third point. We groan with hope. We groan with hope. Look at verses 23 to 25. And not only the creation, Paul says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So creation groans, longing for restoration. So do we. You and I, in our life experiences, in our bodies, in our sufferings, long for restoration. We know we were made for more and for better than what we experience in this world. Paul says that we are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's he talking about? Well, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 gives us a hint. That text says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Every person 
who is a genuinely saved person, every true believer in the Lord Jesus has been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God. Now, a seal was a mark that you might place on an object so that you could identify it as belonging to you. And those whom God saves have been given God's mark, the Holy Spirit of God, indwelling them. So what do we call it that we say that we have the first fruits of the Spirit? If you look in the Old Testament, people were called to give an offering that was a sample portion of their crops. It was the first fruits of their fields. So the first bit of your crops you would bring the Lord, the rest you could have. There was a huge amount of crops that was yours to enjoy or to trade as you wanted, but you brought God your first. At present, all believers have the presence of God in fellowship with God's Holy Spirit to a degree. But the truth is, we know that we do not know God as we will know God. We know that we are not as in fellowship with God's Spirit now as we one day will be. The presence of God's Spirit in our lives to teach us and comfort us, to convict us and shape our desires, it's a great thing. It's worth more than anything we could imagine. But still, the presence of the Spirit that we have now, the, pre- the greatest presence of the Spirit, Spirit that you've ever experienced is just a hint, just a taste, just a down payment on what you will actually get in the future when you see God face to face in glory. We have the Spirit of God living within us, promising us a glory that is to come. And this, actually, the Bible says adds to our groaning. We long for the day when we will be free from sin, freed from pain, freed from suffering, and present with the Lord. And Paul refers to that glorious day as the day when we will experience adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Again, it's the day of the Lord. It's the day Jesus comes back and resurrects our bodies. It's the day when we will know what it really means to be children of God, even as God transforms our bodies to be free from sin and able to stand in his presence. Then verse 24, Paul says, it is in this hope we were saved. Salvation promises us redemption to eternal life. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss this. You need to understand how this works. And maybe you're watching this and you don't know how this works. So listen closely. All of us are sinful people. I am, you are, everybody is. And all of us have failed to live up to God's standard of perfection. Well, in order to rescue us from the judgment we deserve for failing to be as perfect as God wants us to be, God himself sent Jesus, God the Son, to earth to be our Savior. And Jesus lived a life that was absolutely perfect, fulfilling God's law completely. Then Jesus chose to die as a sacrifice to pay the price for all of the sins God is ever going to forgive. And Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, pointing us to the promise of eternal life that we have in him that we'll find in him when we're forgiven. So you might want to know, how do I get the forgiveness of God? This is a thing God will give you for free as a gift. But how do you receive the gift? Let go of every hope you think you have. Let go of thinking you can be good enough to impress God. Let go of thinking any religion out there is going to impress God. Let go of thinking you uh, can that you're just better than others. 
let go of everything that, that you would say is your control and entrust your soul fully to Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Ask him for mercy. Stop relying on self. Stop living by your own standards. Surrender completely to Jesus and you will receive from him the free gift of salvation. And in that salvation is the hope that you, even after your death, will live with your God in joy in a new resurrection body forever. Now, I've used the word hope a couple times here. It's in, the, it's in the text a couple times. And I want to be sure that you're not confused by that. The word hope in the Bible is not a wish. It's not a maybe. It's not, I hope, baseball season starts. Hope in the Bible is a sure thing that you just haven't experienced yet. And that's why Paul says, now, hope that is seen is not hope. And then he asks, for who hopes for what he sees? The point here is that you haven't experienced the full perfection of salvation yet, right? You don't, you don't know what it's like to be ultimately perfected. You hope for it. You know it's your guaranteed inheritance that you, you just don't have it yet, but you know it's there. It's a genuine hope. Paul says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope, real biblical hope in Jesus, keeps us from despair in this hard life. We groan along with creation as we long for our hope to be fulfilled. But hoping, truly trusting in God's promise of eternal life, truly trusting in God's promise of forever joy, that gives us the strength to endure in the here and now. So we focus on forever. We trust the Lord. We groan in hope. Fourth point, I hope you're still with me here, the fourth point, the Spirit, capital S here, the Spirit gives us hope. Look at Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God, the one who dwells within us, also helps us find hope in a broken world. Paul says here, God's Spirit helps us to pray toward hope. We're weak, and I think you know that. We don't even know how to pray, the Bible says. Now, this is not saying we don't know what prayer is. This is not the Bible saying we don't know what prayer is. Instead, it's the Bible saying we don't know how to pray for exactly what God wants. We are sinful. We are often going to fail to know what God wants for us in every situation. We are finite. We can't grasp in our brains the infinite, glorious plan of God. You know, in Paul's own life, he prayed for a thing. He had a problem. He had what he called a thorn in the flesh. And on three separate occasions, Paul prayed that God would remove it from him. Clearly, Paul thought he was asking for a good thing. But the Spirit of God revealed to the apostle that the removal of this thorn was not God's will. Instead, 
Paul's suffering was to teach him about the glorious grace of God. The Spirit said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is shown in your weakness. So Paul thought he was praying for a good thing, but God said, no, I have a better purpose. Thus, what we know in this passage is the Spirit of God helps us to pray in line with the mind of God. Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us. Later in this chapter, I believe it's verse 34, Paul's going to tell us that Jesus intercedes with the Father on our behalf. So how cool is this? The All three persons of the Trinity are involved here. They're all seeking God's glory and our good. The one God is united in seeking God's glory and our good. And notice here, what, what have we seen? Creation groans, verses 22, or verses 19 to 22. We groan, 23 to 25. And now the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groaning. Now, some people would say this means that even when we pray, even when we don't even have, we're so broken, we don't even have words to say that the Spirit is communicated to the Father on our behalf. And I think that is true. But I really think that this passage is telling us that the Spirit of God goes to the Father on our behalf, speaking to God the things that you and I don't even know how to say because we don't know it's the will of God. Then in verse 27, we read this. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is he who searches hearts? Well, in the Old Testament, it's said to be Yahweh, the Lord who searches our hearts and knows us. In the New Testament, it is very clearly, that phrase is very clearly applied to Jesus. So what we see here is that as we pray, the Spirit of God intercedes for us. Jesus knows the Spirit of God perfectly. Again, it's the one true God. The three in one, united. And so, get this. Let this give you hope. God the Son and God the Spirit Bring your needs before God the Father. But unlike how you pray, Jesus and the Spirit are interceding for you absolutely perfectly because the Lord knows what you need. The Lord knows what his ultimate plan is. The Lord knows what he's going to do tomorrow. The Lord knows what will do you the most good. The Lord knows what will give him the most glory. So so Christians, let this give you hope. And let it drive you to prayer. Even when you don't think that you have any idea what to pray, know that the Spirit and the Son of God know. And the Spirit and the Son are interceding on your behalf to the Father. And the Father is the God who loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And in this, pray and let the Spirit give you hope. And now here's the question to ask yourself. This is what kind of would naturally come. Does the Spirit know what's best for us? Will the Spirit do what's best for us? Think about that and look at the final point and and it'll give you great courage. Point number five, our hope is glorious. Our hope is glorious. Look at verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This text is so glorious. It's very familiar to many of us. But it springs to life, I hope you see, in a new way as we see it in its context. Our sufferings in this life, verse 18, are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Creation groans in a sure hope of restoration. We groan as we long for glory. The Spirit groans interceding for us in perfect harmony with the will of the Father and the Son. And then what are we supposed to assume about the things we experience? I mean, after all, some of the things we experience are terrible. Some of the pains we experience last a lifetime. What we must assume is that the Lord is working all things together for our good and for his glory. Stop and hear it again. God is working all things, not some things, all things together for good. Viruses and vaccines. Hurricanes and beautiful sunny days, children born and loved ones lost, crime and charity, all of them are worked together for good in the ultimate, perfect, glorious plan of the Almighty. Listen to me. Not all these things are good. Some of them are awful. But God in God's sovereign perfection works them all for ultimate, eternal, perfect good. And no, I'm not smart enough on this side of glory to tell you how they all work together for the good. I just know that they do because God promises that they do. If you're a child of God, if you're saved, if you love God, know this. God is working everything you have ever faced or will ever face for ultimate good. How can all things, even bad things, be worked by God for good in my life? The answer is found in the golden chain of redemption, which is verses 29 through 30. Now, we're not going to unpack all of the doctrine that could be unpacked in those two verses. That would be a sermon series in and of itself. But we're going to take just one moment to see the hope that we can find for our suffering in this text. Are you saved? If you are, you know that God foreknew you. He set his love on you before there was time in eternity past. It says also God predestined you. We'll talk about that in a moment. Eventually, God effectually called you to himself. He called you to Christ. And when you came to Christ, he justified you, which means he declared you legally righteous before him because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And, well, we'll see what he does later. But before we finish the chain, look at the end of verse 29. To what did God predestine you, Christian? This is important. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the only Son of God who is God. But Jesus, it says he wants to be, he is going to be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus, as Lord, is going to adopt into his family, many other siblings. 
That's how he's first born among many brothers. We sang it in joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Thou our father, Christ our brother. Right here it says Jesus wants to be the firstborn in the family among many brothers. Now he's always existed. He eternally exists. But he also wants us to be thought of as his own brothers. Now for you to be Christ's brother or Christ's sister, God has to conform you to the image of God. God has a plan that's going to make you more like Jesus. Now, you're not going to be Jesus. You're not going to become a God. You're not going to be deified. But you can, more and more, as time goes by, reflect the attributes of Jesus. So, Christian, God is working in your life to change you and make you more holy, to make you more perfect, to make you more loving, to make you more gracious, to make you more hopeful, to make you more steadfast in times of hardship, to make you more enduring, for you to have more of an eternal perspective. God is making you into his image. And sometimes the tools that will shape your character and mine into what pleases the Lord are things that are hard. They're things that can be very hard. But they will all work together for God's purpose, and for our good, for eternity. So then comes the end of the chain. All God justified, he also glorified. It's spoken in the past tense here because God sees it as a done deal. It is a sure hope. The hope is when Jesus returns, everyone who ever came to him in faith is going to be utterly perfected. All of our tears are going to be dried. All of our imperfections are going to be perfected. All of our hurts are going to be healed. All that we will have left, friends, is the very people that we were actually created to be, fully joyful, fully satisfied, fully perfected in Jesus Christ, fully glorified. A lot of times people speak of our lives as living in the already and the not yet. We already have Jesus and we are not yet perfected. How do you live in the already and the not yet? How do you live in a broken world? Hope is the answer. Creation groans in hope. We groan with hope. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that lead us to hope. And hope, you're supposed to hope as you understand that all of our greatest hardships in the here and now are tiny in comparison to the soul-filling, joyous glory that God has promised us when we stand in eternity perfected in Christ. Hope in Jesus. And if you don't yet know Jesus, come to Jesus in repentance and faith so that you can hope in him too. That is the call. That's our prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so, so very good. And we would ask you now that you would give us genuine biblical hope. Lord, help us to find that no matter how wrong this world feels, no matter how ugly this world can be, it is your world. And you are working all things for good. Yes, the world's broken. Yes, the ground is cursed. Yes, our bodies long for redemption. And it will come. Give us hope and let that hope sustain us in times like now. I pray for all who hear this, that if they don't know you, they will come to faith in Jesus Christ, turn from their sins, be saved. Lord, help them to have that. I pray for all who are discouraged or frightened, that you will give them hope. I pray for our church, that you will continue to grow us and strengthen us, even when we can't physically meet, until we can. And I pray that we'll meet soon. But as we are, as we are sad about what we're missing, as we, as, we, as we realize the things we don't have that we want, help us to hope 
in the glory that is to come. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.